And Lord, bless us as we look at one of these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that I love about Scripture, and you know this is particularly true compared to other ancient manuscripts, archaeologists know if they read something about uh, Pharaoh Nernepta, they, they can't necessarily take the written record at face value because the practice in the ancient world was to build up your own personal political military ruler's image. So sometimes the records recorded we know are good and sometimes they aren't. When God paints pictures or portraits of those in the pages of Scripture, he is really accurate and he shows both their points of beauty and their warts, their highs and their lows. It's accurate. Unlike many, many other documents, not only in the ancient world, but the way we might think or act about ourselves or others, the contradictory elements of our natures. Think of this for just a second. You got somebody like David who really is God's man. And we looked at David in a series just a year and a half ago or so, a year ago. David is God's man. He's got God's heart. He writes half of the Psalms. You know, he's a godly guy. He's God's prince. And yet, you know, in that down moment, he becomes an adulterer. And then a murderer. It's like you got this crazy good high, you got this really lousy low. You think of his son Amnon, and this is sort of a case study in this, sort of the psychology of, of uh, reactions. Amnon passionately loves, we might say lusts, for his half-sister Tamar. And that's true until he has her way with her. He violates her physically. And the text says he hated her with more than the degree of passion he'd had for her before. You got this crazy contradiction. I love you, I love you, I love you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Or you go to the New Testament, you look at Peter. He's this bold, brash spokesman. You know, he's, he's ready to take on all comers until fear just cuts him down. And one of the dangers I think we have in life, this could be true for ourselves, but it's also true for the way we think of others, is there's a tendency to sort of simplify sort of how we see ourselves or how we see someone else by, by thinking of them or relegating them, consigning them to some point in their life. And it's usually not the high point, it's usually a low point. We know something about someone and we say, man, that, that's who and what they are. Whether that's typical of their life or not, it's kind of like in Proverbs, the fly in the ointment, costly, expensive, but you get one little imperfection in there and and that's what you go to. That's what you think about. And that's really, I think, it's an unbiblical norm and it's a, it's a tendency we all have that we need to fight against, this tendency to relegate people to a particular low point in their life. And that's the case with the guy we're going to look at this morning. We're looking at Thomas, Thomas the Apostle. Now, if I say Thomas, for many of us, I don't have to say anything else and you've already added an adjective to his name because, because he's always called Doubting Thomas. And it's hugely unfair and it's hugely unbiblical. And so as we look at Thomas and, and maybe make some applications for ourselves, the way we think of ourselves or also certainly the way we think of others, that's part of the lesson this morning. But what we're going to see is that Thomas has a really, really high high, but he gets designated historically by his singular low spot and so we're going to look at faithfulness in the life of Thomas as a hero of the faith. And as I've gone through this series, some people, if you read through your Bible, you say, man, 
these key characters, they're the, the heroes of faith. What I found in my study is my heart has gone out to people like Thomas or the women we looked at last time. You just realize emotionally, I love what they did. I love where their hearts were at. And that's true for me with Thomas as well. This is the 52nd message in the Heroes and Villains this morning. And related to uh, Thomas, you got a guy who has exemplary, courageous faithfulness and loyalty to Christ, perhaps in a way you and I don't and may never have, but it's overlooked for one moment of stumbling faith. We'll see that Thomas's faithfulness, he was all in. He was total commitment. In that sense, he was like Amnon before he violated his sister. He is all in. He's passionately in. He's committed to Christ. His response to Jesus' death and resurrection was deficient, but what we'll see is ultimately he had a resilient faith, and God's grace restores his stumbling faith. And I think that's a really important lesson for all of us. What you'll find is you and I will stumble in our faith, our confidence, we'll get depressed, despondent, discouraged, we'll stop walking with the Lord, we'll stop actively living the Christian life, and it'll come at unexpected times because usually it's tied to an expectation that got smashed. God didn't come through in the way we assumed he would. God allowed something to happen in life that I didn't think he ever would. And there it is. And what do I do with that? So all of us will face this for sure. Main point this morning is something along this line. Uh, God gives grace not only adequate to inspire faith, but he also gives grace to sustain and revive faith when it stumbles. So we don't want to freak out when our own faith stumbles or the faith of someone around us stumbles. God's grace, as you'll see in the life of Thomas, improves in our life as well. God's grace is adequate so that believers will believe again or believe in a new way or those who have stumbled in the faith get back up and get back up in the race of life. That's where we're going. Uh, at the end, what you'll see in Thomas's life, uh, Christ-like faith remains. And Christ's life in us, spurred by the Holy Spirit, gets us back up and going. So this is not an encouragement to stumble in our faith, okay? But it's a reminder that when we do or when others around us do, that's not the end of the story. Christ's sheep belong to him, and he's a faithful shepherd. And we're in his hand, and we're in his keeping care, his sustaining care. And you, at the end of the day, you can rest in that, that when I fall Christ will pick me up. My faith at the beginning of the day isn't all from me. I'm not smarter than someone else. God gives faith, and God sustains that faith. And that's what we see in the life of Thomas. Uh, on the, the chronology, we're sort of stuck on this image until we finish. We're at the 33 AD crucifixion and resurrection period of Jesus' life this morning. And then geographically, I love this map, by the way. I've used this once before, but it's such a good visual of the land of Israel. So we're going to be in Bethany there up in the central hill country. Jerusalem's near it. And when our story starts in John 11, which is where we will start, Jesus is someplace away from Judea in the south. We, we don't know exactly, but he appears to be about a day's journey away. There we go. Okay. So we're in John 11. You've got your Bible. I'm going to read from the ESV. And if you use a pew Bible, this is page 897. So John 11, verses 1 through 5. Mary and Martha, Jesus' friends, their brother, Jesus' dear friend, 
is sick, and they know it, and they know this is troubling, uh, maybe like coronavirus, I don't know, in a bad case, but they know he's really sick. And so they send a message to Jesus, hey, the one you love, your good friend, our brother, he's sick, would you come back immediately, would you heal him? Starting at verse 6 then, so when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he and his disciples, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Skipping to verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. And just a point here, notice that Jesus here for the apostles is connecting. You're going to see his resurrection and seeing you will believe. He says, but let us go to him. And, and this is Thomas. This is golden Thomas, verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us go that we may die with him. Now, if you read commentators on Thomas or on this passage, everybody plays armchair psychologist. And it's, most of them say something along this line. Uh, a Thomas was a depressive sort. Thomas assumed the worst. You know, he's this phlegmatic Eeyore kind of a guy, and life's always going to be the worst case. So, you know, he assumes that this means death going back. But, but notice, we'll, we'll go back and we'll look at this. Verse 8 the Jews were seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, to get context, you've got to go back to John 8 to see why do they think this? Why does Thomas assume going south again means death? So, in John 8, it's a great passage, and there's great themes in there, but, but there's this discussion, there's a dialogue between Jesus and the Jews, and they say, our father's Abraham, and he says, no, no, you're wrong. Your father is the devil, well, in the context of this aggressive back and forth, two times, verse 37 and 40, Jesus says to the Jews, you're seeking to kill me. And then you get to verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. So when Thomas says, let us go with him and die with him, he's assuming the same thing going on with the Jews before is going to greet them when they return back to the south in Judea and Bethany's just a stone's throw from Jerusalem where this was occurring. So it's not a leap in the dark. He's saying these guys were ready to stone you before you're going right back to them. But his, his response is everything, isn't it? So he just says, he says, well, we'll go with you and we'll die with you. I wonder how many of us would, would have said it that quickly. Let us, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. So when you think of Thomas in the future, think of John eleven sixteen, not John 20. John eleven sixteen, this total, full-in commitment to Christ. Basically, the thought is, Jesus, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. And if you're going to death, then I'll go to death with you because I am stuck on you. I'm a tick on your dog. Wherever you go, I'm going to be. And so if you go south where we know they're threatening to kill you, I'm going with you, and if that means death, so be it. No problem, because wherever you go, that's where I'm going to. This is the other side of the life of Thomas. This is the one that doesn't get mentioned. 
he's absolute in his commitment to the Lord. In plain armchair psychologist myself, I think that's in part why he has such trouble choosing to believe that Jesus had really risen from the dead. And we'll look at this more, but that whole sense of I'd, all my hopes were on Christ. And, and even though he talked about death and resurrection, none of the disciples understood that. And so when Jesus dies, his world as he knows it is over. He simply can't get over it because he was so fully committed. So Tom doesn't say, Jesus, slow down. You know, let's just think about this. You know, there's no hurry. He just says, we'll go. We'll go with you. And it's interesting, in the cases of both Thomas and Peter, they, they both bring maybe a braggadocia, but they both bring, both bring this real commitment, this emotional tie to Jesus. Wherever you go, that's where we want to be. And like Peter, we know Thomas isn't going to be able to fulfill this sense of Jesus, wherever you go, I'll go. And if that means death, so be it. Because we know at Gethsemane, Thomas, like the rest of the apostles, he flees. He flees when it comes to that point where, where suddenly the waters of fear have risen up and he loses that sense of full commitment. His fear has overwhelmed him. You know, he goes from this mountain high confidence. He's in this valley low, low, low of fear, fearfulness, anxiety. Everything's turned upside down. He doesn't know what to do and what to make of it. But this gives, I think, a glimpse of the depth of devotion Thomas had. He's in his own mind at, the, at that time. He's willing to do anything. Lord, what do you want in John 11? What do you want? Whatever it is, I'll do it. I'm with you to the end. And that raises a question <laughs> for me. That's a good quote from King. Uh, what are we prepared to do in Christ's name? So, so Thomas is hanging with Jesus. His immediate response is, I'm going wherever you go. You go to death. I go to death. Uh, what are... What are we poised to do with Christ for Christ? And guys, the best indicator of what you and I might do in the future is what we're doing right now. So is our life characterized by Jesus is our priority, by I'm hanging with Jesus, by uh, Christ in his person and his work is the center of my life and he's the one I'm hanging my hat on. If that's the case, Typically, what we find is it shows up in what we do. So I'm meeting with the, with the church. I'm meeting with other believers because that's what Jesus calls me to. I know I'll meet Christ in the gathering of the saints in a way I can't at home. But it also means things like I'm meeting with the Lord in the morning when I get up and I give him thanks for life and breath and I get with him in his word and I listen to him and I pray and I have that face-to-face, -face, if you will, conversation with the Lord. Guys, the likelihood that we will go through challenges, trials, and temptations well is not high if we're not already meeting daily, regularly with the Lord. Uh, one of the little ditties that I used to share with my girls semi-regularly when I was a firefighter was this. The time to prepare for an emergency is before the emergency. The time to prepare is before. You know, it's common sense for you and I just thinking about the virus. And, you know, uh, uh, financial people will tell you, emergencies come up. You don't know what they are. You don't know when they are. But it's a given. So set some money aside. But guys, also in your homes and mine, when's the next tornado coming? I don't know. 
but it's coming. Or when's the next natural disaster? Or when's the next financial collapse? I don't know. But I want to prepare beforehand. So I want to have cases of water and I want to have foodstuffs behind. I don't have to be a Mormon with the year's supply. But it just makes sense to prepare for emergencies before they hit. Well, one of the ways we prepare for emergencies spiritually as far as faith and faithfulness is we're establishing ourselves with Christ in that relationship, in our confidence, in the truth of God's word all along the way. Because if we do that, when the bottom falls out, we are far better prepared to have our faith restored if we stumble or simply be able to afford other sort of calm and confidence because we can speak to that because we've been meeting with Jesus and our apple cart isn't overturned and we know God's got our back even though life as we knew it may be over. That, that's okay. That's okay. So what we're doing is a pretty good prediction of what we'll tend to do in the future as well. To what ends is our faith poised to carry us? Are we, as a lifestyle now, are we meeting with Christ? Are we serving, praying, renewing our minds? That's a huge one because it shapes our expectations as well as sharing the gospel with others. Now, Thomas did not go with Jesus and he did not die on the cross, did he? He, he wanted to. He wanted to be willing to, right? But you remember Zechariah and Jesus quoted this to the disciples. He said, God, my father is going to strike me, the shepherd. And my father is going to scatter the sheep. Those guys couldn't hang with Jesus at that point because singularly he was meant to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No mere mortal could share that with him. Impossible. Wasn't going to happen. No matter the best intentions, the strongest faith, it wasn't going to happen. But I want to follow Thomas's story a little further than the gospel does. Eusebius, the Christian historian from the early 300s, says Thomas went to Parthia, and that would be in the very northern part of modern-day Iran. I think it's right on the bottom, maybe the Caspian Sea. The Acts of Thomas, which is an apocryphal work, it's not written by Thomas, but it shares elements of the same story. It says he went to India, cast out demons, performed miracles. By the way, to this day, it's not infrequent to meet Asian Indian Christians who have been there for millennia and the presence of Christians in India. There's a particular part of the western portion of India that has historically been Christian or Roman Catholic. And it's always assumed that that goes back to Thomas's ministry, that Thomas's ministry was early and there was always at least a fledgling element of the church there. But both of those sources say the same thing about Thomas's end. They say that he died a martyr for Christ, stabbed to death with spears. So in this sense, not in John's gospel, but later in life, Thomas did make good on his pledge to go where Jesus led, even to his death. It didn't happen the way he thought it would in the moment, but that was still the end of his life. This, like the other apostles, sans John, he gave his life up for Christ in the end to bear witness to Jesus. Switch to John 20, and we're going through the upper room discourse with Jesus, and we're not looking at the crucifixion, we're not even looking at the resurrection. But I want to get to the upper room again, or the room where the disciples are hiding on that first day of the week. Jesus has risen from the grave early that first day, and this happens that evening. So John 20, 
verses 19 through 25. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So please notice this too. They see Jesus and they see the wounds in his hands and his side. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Go down to verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So this passage, this is Thomas's low water mark. And this is where the adjective doubting comes into play. It's from this, from this response to his friends, his brothers in faith, say, we've seen Jesus, and he says, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in his wounds. And I think you really do see here, uh, maybe you've had this too, or probably more likely as kids, you're so disappointed, you know, mom says, I'll make you the best meal, and you're like, I don't want it, I don't care. You know, your friend says, come on, we'll go do something fun, and you're like, I don't want to do anything fun. You know, I'm so angry, I'm so upset, I'm so despondent, I'm so discouraged, I don't want anything. I don't want to hear it, don't tell me, I'm not going there. And I think that's where Thomas is. Commitment was total, so when the hope is dashed, it's like, don't tell me, I'm not going to believe it, not unless he shows up and I can actually put my hands in his wounds. He was fully, fully committed such that when Jesus died, Thomas's hopes died too, at least in that sense. I don't say faith, but at least his hope died then too. So I want to make sure that I'm not too hard on Thomas in this moment of his lapse. Do you remember when we looked in this series at Rahab? I say Rahab and what do you think? Rahab the harlot. We don't call Rahab the harlot in heaven, do we? You don't see her in heaven and say, hi, Rahab the harlot, because that's not the way this works, right? Well, when we see Thomas in heaven, we're not going to say, well, hi, doubting Thomas, because that's not the way it works. It's, uh, I think we need to give Thomas grace, and I think when we do that, what we'll see is that we have a, a form or a model of grace, God's grace appropriately so, for ourselves and for each other as well. So... He was once, and just put Thomas in perspective for just a second. He's one of the divinely, prayerfully chosen apostles of Jesus. And he's not Judas. He's not the one that betrayed. He's divinely commissioned to be one of the twelve that would go out in Jesus' name and proclaim the faith, proclaim the gospel. That's high praise. That's none of us, is it? None of us. His faith was restored, as we'll see in a minute. He did die a martyr's death. The likelihood of anyone in here dying a martyr's death, I think, is pretty small. For the apostles, they all did, except John. And guys, think of this. His name is on the foundation of God's eternal city, the New Jerusalem. So Thomas's name is on the New Jerusalem, the foundation. And it doesn't say doubting on there. Can any of us say our name's on the foundation of the, the New Jerusalem, the eternal city of God? Unless you're named after an apostle, your name's not there. And it's not there for your sake. It's there for someone else's sake. That's, that's eternal honor heaped on Thomas. But we call him Doubting Thomas. That's weird. 
it's unhealthy, it's sick, frankly, that we choose to look at the worst element of someone's life, and that's not the way God treats us, is it? Think of this. What does God call former idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, and swindlers? What does he call them? He calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. That's 1 Corinthians 6. So the epistles are always addressed to the holy ones, to the saints. 1 Corinthians 6 says, some of you were these things. Those titles did apply to your life, but they don't anymore. Because in Christ, you're a holy one. You're a saint. That's how God thinks of us as his children, his holy ones, his saints. That's true of all of us. I think we need to be very careful about assigning permanent attributes or adjectives to people in the Bible or to ourselves, this is in the negative, or to others based on some stumbling faith moment instead of what God says is true about us and about other believers in Christ. The tendency is to go negative, but that's not what you see in the scriptures. God doesn't define us by our sins and failures, but by our standing in Christ, even when we have our moments of stumbling faith. How would we fare? How would you and I fare if our worst sins were known and that, that became the description of our life? And we, we went around life as doubting, adulterer, whatever, liar, swindler, you know, you go through it. And every time someone sees you, that's what they call you. It would be terrible. It would be terrible. We shouldn't act that way. We shouldn't speak that way. All of us ultimately rely on God's grace for our faith and faithfulness, not on ourselves. So we want to be careful. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about reading the Bible, and, and I, it's a joke, sort of. I've said it so long and so often. But it's really shorthand. It's code. Think about this for a minute. Uh, to the degree that I have expectations on God or life or myself or you, there's a good chance those expectations, if they're not met and I fall out, it means that my mind is not in line with God's will and God's word and God's purposes. <coughs> Excuse me. That if my if my mind and my thoughts are renewed so that I think God's thoughts, I'm not disappointed with God. I'm not ultimately disappointed with you or with myself because God's thoughts have become my thoughts. So I know you and I were clay pots and we're fractured and we're broken in all kinds of ways. And God's redeeming us. He's sanctifying us. But none of us are there yet and won't be as long as we're in this body. We're frail and we're prone to sin because we've still got that sinful nature. That's a given. So when I blow it, I don't like it. When you blow it, when you sin against me or I sin against you, we don't like it. But it's like, well, that's, Scripture tells us this is part of life. This is what life looks like. The bottom doesn't fall out. We've got to be really careful that we don't have expectations like Thomas had. It was an unbiblical expectation that Jesus wouldn't die. And I don't blame him for this. Scripture's clear that though Jesus told them, I'm going to die and I'll be raised on the third day, it says that God didn't allow them to understand what he was saying till after the resurrection. So I hold that loosely on him. But I want to be careful about the expectations that I develop in my own mind. We need to be careful about our expectations 
because unbiblical expectations set us up to stumble or fall in our faith. So one of the things we need to do, guys, is we've got to be in the Bible. We've got to be renewing our mind by making God's priorities, God's statements of truth, God's statements about life as it is, ourselves and each other, the future. We've got to take all that into account so that our expectations are based on what God has said, on what God has said. You know, when you get to Hebrews, you find out that biblical faith is based on what God has said. If God hasn't said it, you can't have biblical faith. Biblical faith is always a response to what God has stated. So biblical faith helps inform our expectations. So if we're not careful, what we find out is I set myself up to stumble in my faith because I have expectations that aren't from God. We want to be really, really careful about that. What challenges? And we're looking back, by the way, right on a year or two of well-known Christians saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. Or, or guys, you go to seminaries, these, these were top-tier seminaries historically that say Genesis 1 through 11 isn't narrative, it's not historic, there is no real Adam. I ask myself, I ask you, how might I be setting myself up for disappointment if somebody comes and tells me something new about uh, the ark or Noah, do I say, well, that must not be true? Have I set myself up for failure because I'm not buying into God's truth, God's word? setting my expectations up based on what God has said. That's what I want to be careful about. Now, Thomas doesn't stay stumbled in his faith. If you look down at verse 26 in John 20, eight days later, his disciples are inside again, and Thomas is with them this time. The doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And, and he says to Thomas, now, this interaction with Thomas, this is what you could call loving reproof. So he sort of confronts Thomas on one hand, but you've got to understand this is absolutely in the bonds of love. So he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Put it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Remember, the other apostles, their faith was in part based on what they had seen. Because you've seen me, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, Thomas's response here, this is the second high water mark in Thomas's life as it's painted in Scripture. When he says, my Lord and my God, he was all out. <laughs> He'd been all in. Now I'm all out. And now I'm all back. I'm all in again because you're here. Stumbling faith is restored. Jesus is here and I am all in. My Lord and my God. And you think about this, guys. This is one of the clearest statements in all the Bible about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Thomas's words have echoed down on Christians' lips through the last 2,000 years. I'll bet you've said the same thing. I've quoted this verse just as I've prayed. My Lord and my God. That's straight from Thomas's lips. God's grace was sufficient to restore his stumbling faith, and he is all back in. And that phrase, my Lord and my God, is his declaration of faith, and God has pulled him back up. Junior, let's get back up and get going. We don't want you to stay here. That's exactly, it's reproof, but it's loving reproof to restore Thomas, and that's exactly what happened. 
Uh, his stumbling faith by God's grace led to this apprehension that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And I want to wind down talking about two ways in which Thomas is meant to be an object lesson for us. The first is this. Thomas is a reminder that even those born again through faith can stumble in moments or periods of doubt and unbelief. And to us in that moment, just like Thomas, Jesus says, don't disbelieve, but believe. Don't forsake faith. Don't stay fallen. Get up and believe again. And I love when he says to Thomas, he says, put your finger here, put your hand and put it in my side. Thomas is a believer. He has faith in Christ. But he's at this point where he stumbled and he's not sure which end is up and which end is down. And to him, Jesus says, buddy, what will make it better? I want you to believe. I want your confidence back in me. So here's my side. Go ahead and put your hand right in. If that will help you believe, then do it. And God, God will give us what we need to believe. And when we're down, you can pray, Lord, you show me what I need to know or what I need to see so faith is restored, so I can get back up in the race again. Thomas believed, he stumbled, but Jesus says, buddy, don't, don't disbelieve, believe. And what does it take? Here's, here are my sides, here are my wounds. Put your fingers in, put your hands in, but believe. Let's put this thing behind us. Let's get back up in the race and get going again. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 says that gifts, uh, that faith is a gift from God. And God's grace not only gifts faith, but it sustains faith. One of my favorite Psalms uh, in the Old Testament, Psalm 73 is attributed to Asaph, and whether it's his personally or one of his descendants, I don't know, but Asaph found himself in a setting like Thomas, which is this. He's a godly Jew. He's living with Israel under the covenant with God, the covenant of Moses. And he looks around, and his expectations get dashed because he says in the psalm, I saw the wicked. I know they're wicked. There's no question about this. They're wicked. And under the law of Moses, when you do right, you get blessed. And when you sin, you don't get blessed. But he said, I looked at them and they got blessed. But they're wicked. He says they're healthy, they're wealthy. They've got kids, they've got estates. They look peaceful in death. And he says in the psalm, he says, I was like a beast before you. He said, I was so strung out over this God that it was as if I'm just a dog and I have no ability to interact with you on this thing. You see this at verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can't get there. God, I see this thing, my expectation's blown, and I don't know what to do with it. How do I understand this? Until he says, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He connects, I got back into God's presence, and it all went away. Everything became clear. And for you and I, what you'll find usually is, if we're down in our faith, if we've stumbled, the last thing we want is to meet with other Christians. And you know what we really need to do? We really need to meet with other Christians. And I'm discouraged, and I don't want to read the Bible, but you know what I need to do? I need to read my Bible. Why is that? It's because it's in God's presence that our mind is restored and that our faith is restored. Just like Jesus meeting Thomas there, 
It's in his presence that it all makes sense again. So when we have stumbled in our faith, we want to get back in God's presence consciously. So in prayer, in scripture, with the saints, in home groups, in Sunday mornings, because it's in God's presence that our minds will clear, that our spirits are revived. That's what we need. That's what happened to Thomas. It's what happened to Asaph. I see God again, and all those things, they melt away. My faith is restored. The second element in which his is a, an objective lesson has to do with that element of seeing and not seeing. Seeing and believing versus not seeing and believing. You see this in John 20, 31. John says that his gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas is sort of a, a pivotal person just as a literary device in John's gospel. This doesn't come up in the synoptics. So the apostles, they're going to go out. They're commissioned by Jesus. They're going to go out in his name to share the gospel. And how many of the people they share the gospel with will have seen the risen Christ? Most won't. Most won't. And so here's this object lesson in Thomas saying, the other, and, and John's gospel has all these elements of seeing and believing, but belief or faith is the key term in John's gospel. But you're transitioning now to say, we're getting to the point where you need to believe, but you're not going to see. You're not going to see the risen Christ. You're not going to hear the risen Christ's word. You're not going to see Jesus physically at all, but God has given enough for us to believe anyway. Thomas, who hadn't seen yet, he's like all the Gentiles and all the Jews who hadn't seen Jesus. They're not going to see him physically. They have enough to believe anyway. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. And no one has seen Jesus that way since 2,000 years ago. Thomas is a pivot point. He's an objective lesson that after Jesus' assumption back into heaven, we need to believe without seeing. And this doesn't mean there's not ample evidence, of course. Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is witnessing to me. We have the completed truth of God's word. We have God's spirit. We have God's word. We have everything we need to believe. And Thomas sort of connects those who knew Jesus and saw him alive with those who aren't going to see Jesus. And to them, Jesus says, you're blessed when you believe even though you haven't seen. So he's an object lesson. God uses him to remind us we haven't seen, but we're still called to believe. Thomas has become just one of my favorites in this whole story because I love his passion. I, I love his passion in John 11. We're, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. I'm a tick on the dog, and, and we're going together. But he stumbles because nobody could be with Jesus in that way. But Jesus restores his faith. He graciously picks him back up. Guys, that's a great reminder for us. All of us, James says, we all sin in many ways. But all of us will stumble. You will have moments of doubt in your faith. You'll have moments of questioning others. It's in those moments we need to remember, God gives grace for faith. God sustains faith by grace. And it's in his presence, whether that's his word, whether that's our own quiet time, whether that's home group, whether that's Sunday morning, it's in God's presence that we'll find our faith restored, our minds put at ease. That's where it happens. So I love Thomas and I love this message from him. 
Well, with that, if you would, the worship team was going to come up. And would you stand? I want to read together from 1 Peter 1, verse 8 9, because this is true for, for everyone in this room, God willing. Let's read this together. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Stand. 